Turn to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 12. The Lamb conquers Babylon, part 3. Finally going to be done today with part with chapter 17. It's taken a while. Sorry, it's probably one of the most difficult passages in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to be talking about interpreting the tin horns and the mini waters today. If you want notes, they're on the back table. If you want digital notes, you know what to do. So you received this mailing. Uh, actually, it wasn't this week. It was last week. Last week I was sick. Uh, on the edge of time, this is a seven-day Adventist mailing, just so you know. Um, it needs to be read with a heavy dose of discernment if you read it. Why? Well, because the Seventh-day Adventists have some interesting ideas on the end times. And they actually have some pretty interesting ideas about salvation and things. So if you want to read a whole article on that, you can scan that QR code in the middle, and it will lay out what the Seventh-day Adventists believe. Um, but the Seventh-day Adventists sprung up in the upstate New York in the 1840s. So it's not that old of a... a a branch of Christianity, um, and I would say it's questionable whether it is a branch of Christianity, okay? Uh, during the religious revival known as the Second Great Awakening, at that time, a Baptist preacher named William Miller predicted and preached that based on his reading of Daniel 8.14, which talks about uh, the, <coughs> the Antichrist, uh, Christ would return sometime between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. So he gives himself a year window, but guess what happens? No, he doesn't come back. I mean, I was sad. I wasn't there, but I am sad that he hasn't came back yet. But no, he doesn't come back. Why? Because no man knows the day or the hour when Christ will return. Okay? And, uh, and so he does this prediction on this. And then they, they explain in a way that he, he didn't come back to earth, but he came back to heaven, and it doesn't make any sense really, scripturally, okay? And then it uh, goes on, and a lot of the quotes in this book are from another uh, person down the line um, who has visions and, and visions to interpret revelation, and that's a lot of what's going on there. So if you do read that book, little pamphlet, know that it has some pretty crazy ideas about Revelation and the end times in it, okay? So just a disclaimer there. Because it went out, it was like a mass mailing. It went out to everybody in the 61353 uh, postal code. All right. I did. I haven't read it. I haven't been feeling well. And, uh, but I did research. I mean, I already knew they had some weird uh, end time stuff. So I just researched what they did believe. Um, but let's review what we've learned about the vision of the great prostitute in Revelation 17, okay? So we're going to do a little review. Uh, first, we have the vision of the great prostitute is seated on many, what? Waters, right? And is also seated on the red beast, right? Who has seven heads and ten Horns, okay, and we're talking about the ten horns today, right? Um, <coughs> in part one, we discussed the four possible identities, right, of the prostitute. 
Uh, first, she is a re cryptic reference to Rome used by the Holy Church to keep certain truths from the persecutors. Second, she's the city <coughs> of Jerusalem as an apostate set against God. Third, she's a metaphor for the entire world system set against God. This includes all major cities through time. And fourth, she is a revived Babylon on the banks of the Euphrates River, once again leading the world in an apostate religion. Okay. So these are four options. Uh, you don't have to pick one. You can just say, oh, maybe these is one of these. I don't know. If you're a futurist, you're going to favor two. No, sorry. If you're gonna, a futurist, you're going to favor one and four and possibly include three. If you're a preterist, you're going to like two. In part two, we dug into the interpretation of the seven heads of the beast. We learned that the seven heads of the beast symbolize seven mountains, and that mountain symbolized seven kings or kingdoms. Remember that? And so we have symbol upon symbol, and we have kings and kingdoms. Um, from these observations, we saw two veins of interpretation, right? The first is the vein of kings, especially Roman emperors, preterists, and some futurists like this. The second is the vein of kingdoms, which is opposed to God's people. Those kingdoms would be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. These, these five kingdoms give way to the sixth, which is the <coughs> Rome of John's day. The seventh follows, which we don't know the name of that kingdom. Some believe it's that reborn Rome. Um, the seventh follows, which is the last day of persecution by a world empire. And the eighth is the final expression of that which is actually one of the seven, okay? Tracking? No? Some of you? It's complicated. Sorry. Now let's take a look at the second half of the interpretation in Revelation 17, 12 through 18, and we're going to begin by looking at 12, verses 12 and 13. John says, and the ten horns that, or the angel says to John, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. So those ten kings, these aren't the same kings as the seven heads. Those are two separate identities. So you have seven heads that are seven kings or kingdoms, right? And then you have ten kings, separate. And they have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. So these kings come at the end with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand their power and authority over to the beast. Okay? Let's make some observations here. The Old Testament background for the ten horns is Daniel chapter 7. I don't have time in the service to read that chapter. And we've referenced it several times and read sections of it several times. Um, I encourage you to read Daniel 7 in light of Revelation 17 and, and vice versa. Uh, read through that. So what do we know from the text? First, we, the ten horns symbolize what? Ten kings, right? Ten kings. Second, they have not yet what? Received power. It's a future thing. Um, they have not yet received power. Third, they will have power for one hour. And fourth, they will share power with the beast being of one mind and willing to give it to, willingly giving it to him right so these are the things that we can observe let's go over them so who are these 10 kings well we really 
truly just up front don't know because they have not yet received power, okay? So we don't know uh, who they are. Uh, there are three models of interpretation to identify them. First is literal, so it's literal kings. The second is symbolic or metaphorical. And the third is both literal and symbolic. And as we saw, there is many layers of symbology and symbolic, so it would be almost natural to read this as literal and symbolic. Sometimes you run into problems with that. There are two literal options. The first is ten literal rulers of the ten Roman prophets of Parthia, of Asia, and of Palestine. And this would be the preterist position. This is what they think. So ten literal Roman rulers. Okay? That's the literal. The second is a, a literal <laughs> interpretation, is a confederacy of nations that ally themselves with a renewed Rome, and this would be the futurist position. Okay? So in the future, there is going to be a one-world government that's going to comprise of ten major nations, right, that come together and ally themselves with a renewed, a, a rebuilt Rome government, right? The seventh and eighth head, if you would, okay? Distinction coming together. Now, when I was growing up in a teenager, all the prophecy buffs, the dispensational prophecies, not all of them, but a lot of them said it was the European Union. And they thought for sure that the Lord was coming back very soon, and this was the signs of it. That didn't manifest, and it happened, because they're speculating, right? Um, but we do know that there will be, if you're a futurist, you believe that there's going to be a one-world government opposed to the people of God. And there is still movements within uh, a global economy and a global network happening right now, right? We can read about those in the news. They have different summits and things. Um, but it's only going to happen when God, what? wants it to happen, right? Because God is in control, because Jesus is winning, okay? And so everything that happens, he happens with his approval. The symbolic number option is the number 10, represents the great power of these future kings, just as the lamb's seven horns represent his full power, okay? So it's, it's representing the kingdom's power, if these kings are taken symbolically, then they span the ages of kingdoms who are opposed to the kingdom of God. So if you take it symbolically, it's just not just the last ten uh, kingdoms of the world uh, opposed to God at the end of the age, um, but it's the king kingdoms from out all time, okay, that are opposed to God. And this is the idealist uh, position <coughs> or interpretation. The third interpretation is the combination of the literal and the symbolic. These ten, ten kings do make up a future confederacy which is opposed to Jesus and is conquered at his second coming. And they symbolize the power of the world system which is opposed to God. So both of those things are true. Does that make sense? And so I believe, sometimes often I think I'm a idealist, but these two things uh, go together quite well. Beale writes, who is an idealist, the horns are earthly agents through whom the spiritual forces of Satan and the beast walk, both throughout the age and at the end of the age. Okay? So it's a both and. 
Now, there is a, a snag there, right? Because it says, the, so when it's just, if it's just symbolic, it says, these kings have not, what? Received power, right? So it, if, they ha- if it symbolizes power, but yet they don't have power, how, you know, see how that kind of is a little bit of conflict there. The second observation of the thick text is they have not received power. This observation fits well with the futurist idea of confessory against the lamb at his second coming. The idealist idea of ten representing the power of kingdoms against God in the past, the present, and the future would struggle with this since they have not yet received power, right? So it's kind of like, can I have it both ways? (laughs) Um, They definitely, the ten I think does represent the power of the world, um, but does it represent it for all time or for that time? And that would be the, the rub. And the idealist says, no, all time. And the future will say, well, no, for that time. So from where does their power and authority come? It ultimately comes from who? No, it comes from God. They give their power to the beast, but God gives them their power. He's the one that sets up kings. He's the one that takes down kings. And yet they receive the power from God, and they choose to what? Abuse it. And use it against God. God's kingdom. Yet the lamb, is he confundled? Is he, does he lose? No, he conquers. And I want to say this to you today, because this maybe seems way out there. Kings out in the future that maybe are showing up, or probably are showing up, but we don't know when. But God has given each of you power. You know that? God has given each of you a free will to choose and each day you get up and you have the power for change. You have the power to make those choices, right? And I just challenge you to ask yourself, what do I do with the power that God has given me? He gave these kings power, and they abused their power. He's given each of us power within our circles, right? And how do we use our power? How do you use your power as a mother? How do you use your power as a father, right? How do you use your power as a sibling, right? How do I use my power as a pastor, right? Do I use it as God intends it, or do I abuse it for my own purposes, maybe because I'm lazy, or maybe because I'm selfish, right? God has called each of us to use our power for his kingdom and for his glory. And that's what we, each of us are called to, just like these kings were called to do, right? But they did not. They choose, chose to abuse it. The third observation of the text is they will have power for one hour, right? Not very long. Like the eight, who would only be in power for a little while. So the bait, is it a literal one hour? Is it talking about a short time period? We'll know when it happens, right? I don't know. God limits their reign according to his purposes for the lamb conquers. God limits their reign. Sometimes you're going through something hard, and you're like, when is this going to end? I mean, I've just had a virus, and the virus is really, in the scheme of things, not a very big deal. 
But I've had it since Tuesday, la before last. Is that, is that right? I'm just, just still. And I keep telling myself, <coughs> I'm going to wake up this morning, and it's going to be gone. <laughs> right? When is this going to end? You have a trial that you just keep saying that? When is this going to end? A season? When is the, Some of us are just in winter and saying, when is this going to end, you know? Or we have that negative weather, which we haven't had, praise the Lord, right? The dog was like, when is this going to end? I want to go back outside. But God limits. God sets the seasons. God sets the, the purview of what's going on in your life and what's going on on the world stage. And I pray that that brings some comfort because in his limit setting, he's using it for your eternal good and his glory. Gabe and I were discussing the other day about eternity. And we, we, uh, we were remembering, uh, thinking about lives in contrast to eternity. And, and in Psalms it says, I think it's Psalm 80, 90, Psalm 91 maybe. I don't know. I can't remember the reference. But it says, number your days. And so Gabe being young and, and vibrant, picked 70 because I think, I don't know, I was like, you could have picked a little older, but uh, he picked 70, and so we numbered our days. It's depressing. I got like 9,800 and some odd days. That's not a very big number, is it? I mean, most of us get way more than that each year, I hope, right? $9,000. Not a very big number. 9,000 days. And now it's less. You know, it's 9,800, and that was about you know, 25 days maybe. I don't know. Right? It keeps going down every day. This time, this period, this season, not forever. Right? It's limited. And i got to remember that. Eternity is forever. And what I do here does affect my eternity. Right? It affects how much I enjoy it. Everybody will enjoy eternity who believe in Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But that experience is not going to be the same for everybody. It's not homogenous. The fourth observation of the text is them sharing their power. Sharing their power with the beast being of one mind. And they're united in one mind in opposition to the Lamb and in the persecution of his people. They want nothing but to destroy his kingdom and his people. But praise God, right? They will not win, right? They're not going to win. Let's take a look at Revelation 7.14. It says, they will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will what, church? Conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and those with him, those with him are called, they're called, they're chosen, and faithful. That's who you are if you follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me. The world behind me, right? No turning back, no turning back. What have you decided today? 
Have you decided to follow Jesus? If you've decided to follow Jesus, then you are called, you are chosen, and you are faithful. That is who you are. The identity that's been given to you. And I implore you and encourage you to step into and claim and live in the identity that's been given to you. What does the Lamb do? He conquers them. Amen? Who is the Lamb? He is the? What is, who is he? The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We need to remember that. He's the Lord of Lords on the global scale, on the cosmic scale, but he's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Where? In my moment, in my space, in my bad day. <coughs> and who are those who follow him? We are called, called by God. My sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. We are chosen. Before the foundations of the world, he chose you to be saved in him through the blood of Jesus, chosen. And I know some of us struggle with this description, but they are, we are faithful, faithful, because faith is a gift of God. Did you know that? Faith is a gift of God given to you. It's not something you store up or, or build up it, like conjure within yourself. It's a gift from God. Now, it is something you have to act on with the power that he's given you, right? You have to make the choice. But it's a choice. It's a decision of the will, not an emotion that you feel, okay? And a lot of times it's confusing because we try to collate faith with an emotion. But faith is not an emotion. Does good emotions often accompany faith? Yes. But it's not at its root an emotion. It's a gift given to you by God for you to act. So say, I am called. I couldn't hear you. We've got to do better than that. Say, I am called. I am called. Oh, okay, good. Say, I am chosen. And now say, I am faithful. Because this is the truth that God has established for you in Christ Jesus. This is good news. The Lamb conquers, and we conquer through the Lamb. Right? I'm not conquering by my own means or my own methods or by my own actions. I conquer through the blood of Christ, validated in his resurrection. So let's take a look at Revelation 17, 15. <coughs> and the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and language. It's pretty extensive, peoples, multitudes, nations, and language. The Old Testament background is Isaiah 17, 12 through 13, which says, Ah, the thunder of the many peoples. They all thunder like the thundering of the seas. Ah, the roar of the nations. They roar like the roar of mighty waters. 
The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he, God, will rebuke them, and they will flee away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and the whirling dust before the storm. The angel in verse (coughs) 4... Heather, I got to blow my nose. Can you mute the mic? Fifteen gives the interpretation for the many waters symbolized. The many waters symbolize the people of the earth who join the harlot in idolatry and idolatry. And the harlot, we know, symbolizes Babylon, and we have those four different definitions that uh, that Babylon could be symbolizing, right? Um, but they join the harlot in idolatry and idolatry, and in these passages, those are just the same thing laid over it. Now, we know in common practice, idolatry, adultery is not the same as idolatry. Adultery is infidelity to your spouse, right? Idolatry is infidelity to God, okay? Does that make sense? Now, God created the whole world for one purpose, to worship him, to have a relationship with him. And the whole world, the whole earth, except for the called, chosen, and faithful, right, do not worship him. They were created to have relationship with him. They commit infidelity. Therefore, they are guilty. If you see God's or relationship with God as a marriage of adultery, and that's the image that's being put here. And they are guilty because God is the God of gods and only worthy of worship. They are guilty of idolatry, whether it be making themselves God or worshiping some other spiritual being as God. Patterson writes, Babylonianism seems existing will exist anywhere in the world where religious faith is ecumenical. That's a big word, sorry. Ecumenical means organized. Okay? Any place where the world religious faith is organized, primarily experiential, meaning does it make me feel good? Am I experiencing it? Okay? Imperialistic, meaning it's authoritative, it's in power, right? Hedonistic, it's all about me (laughs) and and my own pleasures. Whatever pleasure I can take in is okay as long as it feels good, okay? And generally, of course, if it's all those things, it's what? Compromise, right? The focus of the Babylonianism is always on man's achievement as opposed to God's grace. If you're sitting there worrying all the time about whether you're good enough, then you're falling into the trap of Babylonianism. You're not probably a Babylonian because you are called, chosen, and faithful. But we have a tendency 
to always forget God's grace or start with God's grace, right? And then turn to our performance. But that's not the way God works, praise the Lord. God does not judge you on your performance. He judges you with grace. Did you know that? So when you've had that really bad day, and you just don't want to go to God because you feel like, yeah, that. God's not judging you. He says, look at my hands. Look at my side. I love you. Come to me. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So don't run from God when you mess up. Run to him. Run to him and step into agreement with him that you messed up but that he loves you and that he is the sanctifier of those whom he has called, of those who he has chosen, of those who are faithful. This is the God that we serve. Verse 16, and the ten horns you saw, they are the beast. They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing their royal power over to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Verse 16 reminds me of the words of Jesus in Mark 3.26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. That's good news. Evil, chaos, Satan, it's coming to an end. And as they go and fight against this entity, the great prostitute symbolizing Babylon, Babylonizing, symbolizing those potentially four things, right? She is defeated. And it's amazing to me how often I see God using wicked forces to accomplish his good will. Verse 17 reminds us that God is what? He's in control, church. He's in control. And we need to remember that in our own trials. Whatever you're walking through, know that he's in control. He's shaping it. He's molding it for your eternal good and his glory. And we need to learn to live for our eternal good and his glory. Because when we do, the trials aren't going to be easy then, but they're going to be easier. Half the time when I'm in a trial and I'm having a hard time, it's because I'm living for my comfort, my earthly good, rather than for my eternal good. I've lost sight of eternity. He will fulfill his purpose. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He is coming back. He is going to judge the living and the dead. 
He will complete his purposes. Are you ready for him to return? Are you willing to participate in the kingdom that he has laid out? Verse 18, and the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Who is the great city? According to Revelation 16, 19, it's Babylon. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered who? Babylon, the great, to make her drain, and it's a female, drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Where did his wrath come from? The ten kings and the beast attack Babylon and destroy it utterly. And next week, we'll see how the kings of the earth and the sailors and the people of the earth, they weep over Babylon's destruction. And yet we are not called to weep, but to rejoice because evil has been vanquished. Amen. The identity of the woman is Babylon. Whether it is revived Babylon or a cryptic reference to Rome, a symbol of Jerusalem or a symbol of chaos and evil or some combination of this, we, we don't know. I mean, I'll just be quite honest with you. I mean, all those have valid things, but all of them have problems too. I mean, so it's not like just clean cut. What we do know, though, is Jesus wins. Amen? We know that. Woo! And Babylon, in whatever meaning, will be done away with. In this, we have hope. The hope that the wicked will not always prosper. Right? And it seems, as we look around, the wicked prosper. Right? But they will not. That will, uh. <coughs> that will not always be so. Viruses will not always be around. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Right? Cancel is going to be abolished. Praise the Lord, right? It will not always be so. God is reworking all things in the sacred space. That's what Revelation is all about. He reworking the whole world and the, and the heavens to have a renewed, a new heaven and a new earth. He's reworking all things in the sacred space. And it's a hope that we will reign with the Trinity in a new heaven and a new earth. Oh, what a day that will be. Let us hold fast to the present and future hope. It's a hope for the present because God is working in your problem for your eternal good and for his glory. So it's a present hope and it's a future hope. This is not forever. It is a season and it will come to an end for me maybe in 9,000 some odd days. For some of you, way less. For some of you, way more. But it's not forever, right? We have that future hope of a new heaven and a new earth. Because the Lamb has conquered through his birth, through his death, and in his resurrection. We have life. We have power for today and for tomorrow and eternity. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love given to us, and that you have called us, that you have chosen us, and that you have given us faith and made us faithful. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. We pray that we would go in your victory today. In Jesus' name, amen.